you know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome. This is the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Mark Purcell, the founding host of the podcast, and I'm a sci-fi horror filmmaker, and my first feature film, The Alternate, is coming out in 2022 for everyone to see. I'm Liz Manischel, I'm a writer, director, producer, who has made two features, Bread and Butter and Speed of Life. I'm currently in development on about five more. I'm also a distribution consultant. I do sales, and I used to manage Sundance's creative distribution initiative. This week, we welcome the women behind the WB Television Workshop, Rebecca Windsor and Allie Lockman, to talk about what the WB TV Workshop is, how they run it, what they look for in great writers and directors. After that, we talk about an article from No Film School, and then Auric has a question for me. But first, Auric, what's going on? How are you feeling? What's going on in your life? Yeah, I'm okay. I'm doing well. Yeah, I just finished re-editing my trailer for our distributor. The deal was, I don't know if I talked about this on the show. I know I told you about it. They didn't do any expense cap for international. We decided to get away from that. And so we're doing like a 50-50 split. But then part of the deal was like, okay, well, you have to do like re-edit your trailer for us or hire somebody that we approve to edit the trailer. So I was like, well, before we hire someone and do it, you know, pay money, let me just see. I think I can, you know, give me your notes and I'll do it. And so I gave it a shot and he loved it. They thought it was great. Just went over the moon for my re-edit. They're just amazing. And if you're a Patreon subscriber, you can actually watch this version now on our Patreon page. I posted the, you know, first pass cut that's like totally private. You can see the difference between the current trailer that's out that everyone can see and the one that's going to be released whenever the distributor decides to release it. It's very different. <laughs> it's very yeah. cool. This could be a side business for you, too. I mean, look at As that. I like, said. Hopefully, you'll just be making movies, making lots of money. Right. Still. I did tell him. I was like, hey, if you ever need anyone, you know, need a trailer edited, let me know. I'd love to do it. And he was like, oh, I have a guy. But if my guy's not available, then, you know, I'll let you know. And I was like, okay, cool. But yeah. He has a guy. If anybody wants a trailer edited for their distributor, I now have experience. No, so actually, Arik, I get asked it. that all the time, and I have. Oh, really? A I have a guy too, but he's. Oh yeah. He's not always available. So if you are interested. Yeah, hook, I'm yeah, happy. hook me up. I'd love to do it. It was really fun, actually. You know, to like see what was already ex- like what I had already done, which actually, you know, was edited by by one of our producers, and then I kind of just re-edited it. So like the the teaser trailer that's out is like kind of a combo effort, but then to like get these notes from you know my distributor and be like okay well let me let me take that and like make something else it was it was fun so i'd love to do it again it'd be great cool how are things with you liz what's going on my sister visited yesterday and we had a great day we went to go get some pizza and then she came back and she saw the state of our house and by house i mean very small apartment and she said stop everything you're getting rid of a bunch of stuff and cleaning. So we just spent a bunch of hours purging. <laughs> you wow. may see, if you were on video, if you if if listeners could see, they would see like a stepladder behind me. <laughs> they would, and this is actually much less stuff than we had yesterday. So we're in a purge right now, and I'm realizing it's actually really helping me creatively in a in a very strange way. Where it's like with less stuff, I feel less trapped, and so I feel more less stressed out and more able to complete tasks. Like, it's the weirdest thing. So that's what's going on in my life right now is I'm just getting rid of a bunch of shit that I felt obliged to keep for no reason whatsoever. And like, while we're on this recording, a random woman from my mother's group is going to pick up like 
three sets of china that my mom gave to me that I just kept because I thought, wow, one day I'll need that china. I'm never going to need that china, Auric. I'm never going to need it. It's gone. Go away. My mom tried to give us some china once and we were like, yeah, we, we don't need it. Then when we moved to a house, we were like, okay, we'll take some of it back. But then she was like, oh, you should have this you know, dining room, like, you know, utensil set. We're like, no, oh, we're not no. using that. <laughs> like, like real silver? No. no. <laughs> it's just not with, how, how we treat, roll. What do I do with real silver? Like, what am I, yeah. can I not just run it under a faucet? That's all I do. Uh, right. Yeah. <laughs> no, I can totally relate to that. But I'm just curious, what other things have you been getting rid of in this purge? Well, first, my sister went through the bathroom and she's like, you have stuff in your medicine cabinet from 2017. So it, were, it was things like that. Okay. Maybe I'll need, you know, these, these eye drops from 2017. One day, one, maybe one day my eyes will be dry enough to use these eye drops from 2017. <laughs> the expired ones. Like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's stuff like that. And it's clothes. Like I just lost a lot of weight. I just lost about 30 pounds. So like there's just a bunch of moo-moos. Like what am I going to do with these moo-moos? So it's like it's just getting rid of a bunch of things that like remind me of the past that I don't need to have around. Is this some a little other inside baseball? So we're doing a new video for the the podcast, a little trailer, and uh, you know Liz is on camera, like talking and you know acting and stuff. And I was like, "Wow, Liz looks incredible!" So you know, Very congratulations. Nice. You. you know, I was like looking at myself in those videos I've been doing for Patreon. I'm like, I look like a monster. <laughs> Holy <laughs> shit! <laughs> Liz is all like. Like, looks like she like is like working at a yoga studio or something or like whatever. And I'm like, oh man. So like I worked out this morning. (laughs) (laughs) I got to get this shit back together. You know, it's very nice. Well, for for when I do my side of the video, I want to look like, you know, not like a mess. (laughs) We're we're both going to look real spiffy. I'm not worried about us, but that's very kind of you. Yeah. I'm, I realized that exercise and vegetarianism as a stress reliever so it's been good (laughs) yeah i was like damn those hikes are paying off (laughs) amazing (laughs) i should go on hikes once a week or whatever once a day whatever it is you're doing that's a lot of once a day no once four times a week four times four times a week that's that's great wow i will say that i owe everyone a lot of patreon videos but they will be up by the time the the person that i'm thinking of right now i'm going to esp a name into the ether for them to become a Patreon patron. And by the time they come become a patron patron, I will do a video. Nice. So don't forget to support us on Patreon. www.patreon.com slash MMIH podcast. And also, please make sure to check out jambox.io. They're our sponsor. They're a new sponsor. They're a new royalty-free music and special effects company with an emphasis on high-quality cinematic cues. They offer customized plans to fit your needs. They focus on working with composers on an exclusive basis. You won't hear those tracks popping up on any other platform. And starting a few weeks ago, you could use the promo code MMIH. So please use that promo code and you get a 20% discount on your subscription. But without any more delay, here's our chat with Rebecca and Ellie. We're here with Rebecca and Ellie from the Warner Brothers television workshop thanks so much for joining today we're going to start with just a one minute bio for each of you so maybe rebecca go first if you could just give us our your one minute bio sure so thanks for having me i grew up wanting to be an actor and moved to new york after college to do that that did not pan out as it doesn't for most people so i pivoted and, and then moved back to la 
and got an internship at a feature production company and learned what development was. And that felt like it was ticking all the boxes of fulfilling the creative muscle that acting did, but hopefully with more of a career path. So from there, I was told to go work at an agency. So I worked at an agency for a couple of years. And from there, moved on to a feature production company. And then I worked at a TV production company. And then I worked at the Sundance Institute for a couple of years. And then landed at Warner Brothers about six and a half, seven years ago, where I have been ever since running the the workshop. Your turn, Allie. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. So like Rebecca, guilty. I also was an actor first out of college. I was a film and theater student and I tried to do that first. I was working and was unhappy. And that seemed like the surest sign that I should not pursue acting. I got a job working for David Schwimmer on a film and theater project called Trust in Chicago, and then was sort of off to the races with production. I absolutely fell in love with being part of the process from like, you know, nascent idea all the way through to sharing it with the world. Moved to Los Angeles, got an assistant job, you know, paid my dues. I worked at a company called Throughline and two clients of Throughline, of my boss at Throughline, were selling a project called Kings of Khan, a comedy series based off the Supernatural fan convention circuit. They took a huge chance on me and asked me to help produce it which was absolutely one of the best ex- work experiences of my life to this day, except for the workshop, of course. And um, from there, I basically ended up on building sort of the line producer track, training to become a line producer, came to Rebecca from production and have been at the workshop for three and a half years now. And so it, just a quick question about that. Like, how does this fit into the line producer path? Or is this kind of like a divergence from that? It doesn't. <laughs> but, but, it's, but it's absolutely complimentary because I think one of the things that I learned very early working in production is that the people, producers or otherwise, that I was working for that I respected the most were the people who hadn't taken the shortcut to get to where they are. The people who had you know, worked every job, been a PA, been a best boy, you know, done an agency assistant job. And so we're able to as eloquently speak with you know, the lowest person on the totem pole as they were with maybe the studio exec coming to oversee an episode. So for me, it, this job 100% fits in the path of what I'm trying to do, which is be as broadly knowledgeable as possible when producing content. Because I, I, just, I just think the, 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 you, taking a shortcut is certainly one way to get there. But the people I respect the most are the people who have taken the time to learn how every piece of the puzzle works. Hmm. We talk a little bit about curating these amazing programs that you're in charge of, that you two are in charge of. We have an ongoing debate on the show about meritocracy and whether the cream rises to the top and how, how these programs get curated. Can you talk a little bit about, in selecting participants, the kind of walls or, or blockades that you come up against? Yeah. And I'll talk about them separately because they have slightly different selection processes, even though philosophically, we are still looking for the same thing in, in both. You know, How do we just find the, the best of the best that, that apply? On the writer side, I, I, do, I do as much as anything is a meritocracy of talent in this industry. I believe that, that's what we, that is what we aim for. Knowing, of course, taste is subjective. And that's why there's not one person making the decision. It's Ali and me and that, you know, we're, there's lots of conversations and other people involved in the process because I may think something is hilarious and she might think it's horrible. So, or she loves genre and I'm, you know, so-so on it. So again, we sort of play to who, 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 who knows a show better, who 
response to what who feels the most passionate. But our programs are not diversity programs. They're open to everyone. And that is by design, although we are always, always trying to make sure that our writers and our directors that do get into the workshop are representative of, of everybody. For us, we did not want to tokenize it and turn it into, you know, you are the diversity hire on this show. We want to be able to go to our showrunners and say, 2,500 writers applied to this workshop. These are the best eight based on their talent. And by the way, this one is Black, this one is LGBT, this one is Asian American, whatever, as opposed to the best of the others. So we're not perfect. We have blind spots. We, we do our best to try and make sure we're reading as many people. I mean, we're not reading 2,500. We have help in, in, in getting through that material. So I know that it's not a perfect science, but I stand by that everybody who gets in deserves to get in. No one's getting in because of nepotism. No one's getting in because they, are, they know somebody or they work on a show and the showrunner put them up. They're getting in on their own talent. So as much as anything in this industry can be a meritocracy, that's what we aim for. On the director side, I think in terms of re- responding to the talent, it's the same thing. It's a little bit trickier just by virtue of how hard it is to break in as an episodic director in general. As a writer, if you get your first job on a show, you are one of many writers on staff and you are the low man on the totem pole. So you are not expected to save the day or save the episode. You are just there to pitch ideas and keep the conversation going. But as the director of the episode, you are the captain of this ship. So for a showrunner to hand over the reins of their, you know, $5 million episode, their baby to someone who's never done TV before requires a few more hoops to get through a a larger body of work and all of that. And in our selection process for the director's workshop, we set it up because we also did not want to just become a shadowing program. There are many directing programs around town who often all they can offer is shadowing. And yes, you can learn a lot by shadowing and people should do it if they can, but often it does not lead to work. And there are many directors who have shadowed multiple times and still not gotten a job. So we wanted to be a program that created a true pathway to getting a job. So we do that by involving our showrunners in the selection process. So while we, Ali, I, and the rest of the workshop team are curating our finalist list based on, on do we respond to, to their short films, their, their features, their music videos, whatever, we're also identifying which of our shows are open to a new director, because not all of them are. Some have been very supportive and have helped launch many careers. Others feel like their show is too big or it's you know, too, too, too much visual effects and stunts and green screen that people haven't done or or it's just a really short episodic order and they don't have the space for it. But once we have that group of shows that does want to participate and support the program, we would send three finalists to each showrunner and have them watch material, meet the director and make the decision. And the person they decide gets into the workshop, but is also guaranteed an episode on their show. So going back to the meritocracy question, I think, again, I stand by everyone who gets in, everyone is in agreement that they are incredibly talented. On the director side, there is an added element because they have to be guaranteed an episode. It's ultimately the showrunner's decision on who they choose. And often, just because of the state of what we're in, and, and, and sort of a great thing is that they are looking for more diversity on the writer side as well, but particularly on the director side. And so we do our best to also not just in terms of ethnic background and, 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 and sexuality and all that, but also give them the directors that are going to be right for their shows. So... On the director side, it's a meritocracy, but we all are also mindful of what are our what are our shows. If someone submits a piece of material that's wonderful but just doesn't match the content that we're making, 
it can be hard to find a place for them. So it's there's a few more sort of layers to to the selection, the director side. Sorry, that was a very long winded answer. <laughs> I, was, I was just going to add because because I was thinking about your your analogy with well not the analogy but expression like does the cream rise to the top and what it immediately makes me think as someone who came to this job from the outside. I have like a multitude of friends who are pursuing directing and writing and are looking to get into programs like the one that 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 we run. I would say 100% the cream rises to the top. There's just a lot of cream. <laughs> There's a lot of talent. Like, I don't think we've ever had the, at least in my short time working with Rebecca, ever had the experience of, of experiencing a, a lack of, of incredibly talented people. The, the hard part is, is, you know, the game of inches once you have this, this pool of wildly talented people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think between our program and whether it's Sundance or whatnot, any, any of these really competitive programs, the the sad fact is there is never enough space to support all the deserving applicants. There are, we could fill the workshops with many more people if we had budget and time and, and, and all of that. And so they are really difficult decisions to be made because we know that there are so many more talented people who are equally deserving. And sometimes it just, uh, as Ali said, it's a game of inches or it's just the wind was blowing one direction that day. So just to press you on your answer a little bit. So th- there's no situation where like one of your bosses or a higher up at WB like comes to you and says like this application from this person I know, they're so talented, they're so great. Take a look at it, make sure that it gets in the mix. Like does that never happen? Or are you just saying I do get refer like I will get emails and calls from the president of this, you know, I've gotten <laughs> calls from the president of the studio. I've gotten calls and emails from some of our biggest producers and writers out there, all that means is I will I will look at it myself, as opposed to, again, if we have 2,500 scripts, I'm not reading 2,500. We have a team that kind of helps us get through the volume. But if there is a personal referral, I will read it. But it, in no way does it ever mean that it gives that writer a leg up on getting in. And they just got past the gatekeeper, basically, to, to the decision makers. That's it, really. Yeah, it, it literally just means I or Ellie will read it. And, and right. they know this. Uh, and again, some of our biggest producers, w- and, and I think that they respect it. Honestly, sure, they want their people to get in, but they respect the process. And they've also hired people out of the program. So they know that they know what we do. And, and it's a disservice to that writer, potentially. And it's a disservice to all writers who go through the program and the reputation if we start letting in people based on who they know. You know, we get calls or emails from a showrunner saying, if we get renewed next season, I'm bumping up my writer's assistant to staff writer. So can, you know, if they get in the workshop, they'll be so much more prepared. That's great. If we were to let that sta- that writer's assistant in and they weren't the best, and then that show gets canceled and now there's no job for them next year. And I don't feel strong. I never felt strongly about them in the beginning. I'm not going to be able to staff them anywhere else. And again, it just dilutes the reputation of the program and makes it that much harder for every other writer that is deserving. Yeah, we spend six plus months working extremely closely with with each year's class of writers. And so if we're not super passionate about every single one of them, it, it's only it's a dis- like Rebecca said, a disservice to the program, a disservice to the program's reputation, but also a disservice to our our process that nobody sees with the writers because we work so closely with them and we have to be passionate about them as creatives and as people. And taking away that spot from someone who is deserving that we gave it to someone who knew someone, it just, you know, I, I, I carry the responsibility of being a gatekeeper 
very seriously. And I know that this can, and it's like not to pat myself on the back, but I have seen, I know that getting into this program is not a guarantee of, of a job or career, but, but looking at the legacy of alumni, it is, it can be life-changing and, and, and I want to give it to the people that I believe in, not someone who just kind of. I love the intensity of your responses. I remember I, I, oversaw like just like the back end of a fellowship submission process at Sundance. And people would write on Facebook like, not like they ever read my application anyway. And I remember being so like offended because clearly you're putting so much time and energy in. So I just want to acknowledge that. In terms of the type of work you already alluded to for the director's workshop, sometimes the work doesn't match the show. Is there a world where you advise applicants to have spec scripts that are based off of IP or spec scripts or or scripts that are completely original? I mean, is there kind of a trajectory that you encourage in terms of materials you look at when you're evaluating candidates? Well, with the writer's workshop, the the first step of the application is a spec script. And we, we have a list of accepted shows that we publish. Well, see, week. now I just showed all my cards that I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> I knew that. We're one of, you know, uh, it used to be that all of the, the writing programs kind of followed suit. And then some of them have gone away from specs and are just going to original pilots. We stand by the spec part of the application, even if specs are out of fashion. And the only reason that a writer is writing it is to get into a program. They serve a few purposes. On the one hand, that is the job description. If you get a job on a show, you have to write in your showrunner's voice. And if you can't do that, then you will lose your job. <laughs> you, you failed the assignment. And so I, I have heard numerous stories of writers who got jobs and they're, you know, because they wrote an a, amazing original pilot, got staffed and just could not capture the show and had to be rewritten all the time. And so that's not going to set you up for success. So I think as a discipline, it's really important for writers to be able to know how to capture the nuance and the character and the structure and the, you know, all the, all the little things that make a show have a unique voice. And then the other thing is, again, because we have such a huge volume of applications, it's very hard to compare original pilots side by side. It's not apples to apples. And they're very hard to, to, to write and to, to execute well. And it almost, and, and in doing a spec, it almost creates a baseline. We know what, the sh- what this is supposed to be. Have you achieved it or not? It's a little bit like RSATs, where if you're writing Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, like I know what that show is meant to be. Have you achieved it? Have you elevated it? Is it not there? Did you not capture it? And because we don't have a ton of time to get through 2,500 scripts, it makes it a little bit easier to get through, you know, to kind of weed out the people who have not been able to do that. And then if you do advance the next round, if we do like your spec, if we feel like the writing is strong and you captured it, the voice of the show and also brought something of yourself to it, then we do ask for an original piece of material, which can be a pilot, it can be a screenplay, it can be a play, just anything to see what, what, what your writer's voice is. So to back to your question, I'm not sure if there's an actual algorithm or, or, or say, write this and then write this kind of a thing. Sometimes people ask us if they both need to be in the same genre, other than identifying as a comedy writer or a drama writer and making sure that your samples line up there. Not necessarily. I think there should always be a through line to your work. So if, if, if your spec is a superhero show and then your original pilot is like a dark comedy that, you, you know, or dark dramedy about whatever, it may be a little hard for me to, for us to get a read on who are you as a writer unless 
if both stories are about mother daughter relationships, then okay, like that, that's great. You, you, you can be genre agnostic, but this, these are the stories you like to tell. So we're trying to get glean a little bit into who you are as a writer through these two pieces of material. So you both talked about how you feel that the cream definitely rises to the top and that there is like a lot of good material out there. So when you're faced with two applications or, or that are like both equally great, like what makes one stand out from the other and like get that slot, you know, when they're like both really high quality? Well, I think at the spec phase, that is when I tend to go back to their personal statements. I know some people, everyone has their own process for how they deal with an application. I, I always go to the script first, and then I read the personal statements. Because you can have written the most amazing personal statement or have led the most impressive life. But if, you're, if your script is not there, then it kind of doesn't matter. But when we are making those hard decisions, who do we want to advance to the next round? That's when I often go back to those personal statements and see, okay, we only have one last spot and two scripts that we really like. Does somebody stand out in the personal statement? When it comes time to actual selection in the workshop, it's, it's more complicated because we have met, we've done interviews. So there's a lot more that goes into that. Ellie, I don't know if you have anything, a different point of view. <laughs> no, not a different point of view, but just to add to what you said, which is absolutely true. I think if there are two things that I, that I know both of us and I've heard Rebecca come back to, and I know I come back to when we're in the spec reading process that we're looking for, you know, obviously anybody who's read a lot of scripts or write scripts, you know, when it's good, you know, when a story is compelling, we are all consumers of storytelling. So we know when something is compelling and it's, there is yes, a structural formula sometimes to why, but it more often it comes down to, is this something where I can truly feel a unique passionate voice. And that's a really, really hard thing to pin down in a, in a simple soundbite answer. But I think there are two things that I know we've both come back to that I think are, are good pieces of advice or things to think about when approaching the spec. One is write the show you're most passionate about. Don't write the show you think we want to read or the show that you think everybody's going to spec and you don't want to be one of a million because even if it is one of a million or one of 2,500, if it's great, it's going to stand out. It's, it's not like just because everybody writes you one year, we don't want to read another you. A great you spec is a great you spec, period. So write the show that you feel most deeply connected to because that's going to shine through. And then the other piece is when writing a spec, obviously, like Rebecca said, you're delving into a world that exists, characters that exist, storylines that are already in place, you know, maybe tropes or themes or, or repeat beats. And I think a really hard thing to do, especially if the show is many seasons in, is to write a story that is true to the, to the show and all elements of it and the voice of the showrunner, but that actually does something new. And I think one easy way to avoid doing that is to take a look at your spec and ask yourself, okay, is this a scenario? Are these emotional beats and challenges that we've seen these characters go through before? And I'm just putting it in a different setting. Or is this actually something new for these people? Because I think, and I, I think Rebecca would agree that the vast majority of the scripts that we read are really, really good. But really, really good, unfortunately, does not get you to the next stage. You know, like a solid spec is a great read. But the, the writing that tends to elevate people to the next stage of the selection process is writing where we go, oh, my God, they, you know, I've never seen that character have to deal with X, Y, and Z. Or I've been craving this, you know, theme to get explored for the last two seasons and nobody's done it yet. And they did it. So that was a long-winded answer, but. Oh, very helpful. I'm thinking about, we had a guest on the show named Felicia Pride and just a wonderful writer and filmmaker. 
And she took a course on how to apply to fellowships and labs and workshops. And they encouraged her to write a personal statement that was tied to the material she was submitting. So like your example, if if she submitted two mother-daughter scripts, that her personal statement would have a lot to do with her relationship with her mother. Is that something that feels like good advice that you would also encourage? Yeah, I, I don't know that I always will recognize that. So I think if it's obvious, like in the mother-daughter situation, perhaps, I, I think that there are several great ways to tackle the personal statement. And again, there's not one, one way to, do, to, to, to make a compelling statement. I think the best thing is to just not be generic. So it's not some version of TV was my babysitter growing up because of X, Y, or Z. We get a lot of those. But whether it's something about, about your childhood or growing up or, you know, child of divorce or, uh, you know, your father died or, 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 uh, you know, some struggle, some physical struggle or being a minority in a heavily white area, you know, there, that can be impactful, but equally impactful is talking about the film or the TV show that inspired you to 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 want to be a writer and to choose this path. So I think you don't have to have had a turbulent childhood. We don't need to see your pain. It doesn't have to be a painful thing. It can be joyous. But I think it should just be unique and authentic to you. And again, it's knowing that at that point, the only way that we get to know you is through this spec script that you've written. How do you want to introduce yourselves? What's going to be memorable about you? What are we going to learn about you that's going to give us a little insight into who you are and why and why you want to do this? And I think something else we've come back to is like the personal statements I know we both respond to more are the ones where you're a storyteller, right? So tell us a story in your personal statement. I don't mean fictionalize or, or, or romanticize or like turn your life into trauma porn, but, 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 <laughs> but, you know, like uh, when you've got two personal statements next to each other and one says, I've had a really hard five years. You should accept me because I've, because I've tried so hard. That may be true, but that doesn't tell us much about who you are and how you tell the story of who you are. So similar to my last question, what are things that immediately get a pass from you where like you're reading a script and it's like, okay, they're not ready or or whatever. Is there, are there things like that or is it more minute and more subtle? Yeah, I mean, some of them you'll laugh because they're so obvious, just proofreading and typos, you know, a typo here or there is is, is one thing, but when it's just over and over and over, it just shows kind of a lack of professionalism, a lack of diligence to the craft. And, you know, it's, 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 yeah, so I don't like that. I think not capturing the show, if the show always opens in a particular way with a montage and, and a voiceover from a character like Grey's Anatomy always does, you know, Meredith Grey does a voiceover while stuff's happening. So if you're writing Grey's Anatomy and you're not including that, then you have not captured the show. And then I don't know if it's an immediate past, but something that I sometimes will take note of is if the page count is ridiculously short or ridiculously long. I, I wouldn't say it's an immediate past because if the writing is still there, then maybe, you know, but, but often it's a sign that the writer has talent, but they're too green to know that a one hour drama should not be 75 pages, uh, you know, th- things like that. Yeah. I, I would also say to, to what we were just talking about, if I'm, you know, 15, 20 pages in and I feel like this is totally solid, but I have absolutely seen this episode before. I'll, I still, I'll still finish the script, but it's, it definitely goes in the probably not pile because it, it does need to grab you and it needs to 
feel fresh in some respects. I had a different question teed up, but I'm going to ask this one. Do you watch TV all the time? How are you able to track all of these like <laughs> episodes? I do. It's, you know, I, I hate to say it's a burden because like I shouldn't be complaining about the fact that I have to watch TV for my job. <laughs> and But I do. I keep this like never ending queue in my phone. Anytime someone is like, oh, well, you got to watch the show. It's amazing. And I'm like, okay, out of the queue, I'm never going to get to all these shows. But so I am all, I mean, and I love TV. So I love watching it. It's just, you know, especially now that I have kids, it's, I can't watch anything until they go to sleep. And then sometimes my husband isn't interested in watching the thing, you know, so there's all of that, but I watch a ton. But having said that, I definitely have not watched every single show that is on the spec list, but I make sure that before reading it, I am familiar with the show. I would never read it blind. I will read, you know, I will watch at least, at least the pilot and probably another episode or two, depending on how many, if it's one season, maybe that's enough. And I'll look up Wikipedia just to kind of give me an, an idea of, okay, I, I get the sense of the tone and the characters. And, and then I'll, you know, or maybe I'll watch a couple episodes in between those synopses. But, but then I will also defer to other people. Like I said, like Ali might love a particular show and I've only seen the pilot. So I'll say, yeah, I thought, I thought this was okay, but you're, you're the expert on this show. So you tell me what you think. Yeah, I think we do, right? I think we do a decent job of dividing and conquering in the sense of, you know, we've both seen a lot of what's on the accepted shows list, but it's, it's almost impossible to have seen every episode of every single show. So if there's a show that Rebecca hasn't seen as much of, you know, we'll be texting and saying, okay, you watch that show. And, and we make sure at least one of us is, is, is the expert, quote unquote. Moving on to like a more director centric question. When you're looking at director applicants, like what like are some of like, like what's a perfect package? Like what would you like want a director to have done that they can show you that will like really like blow your mind and get you excited to, to, you know, have them on their list? Is it like a short film, a feature and like a web series? Like, is it just a really, really great short film or a really great feature? Like, does it matter? Like, what are, what are you looking for in previous work? There's not really an algorithm for that. Unfortunately, we have had people who have directed a couple of indie features. We've had people who have been longtime editors and just made like one or two shorts recently that are really great, but they have this sort of body of work and TV editing and whatnot. So it can be across the spectrum. What I will say is that to my point earlier about the demands of, of being an episodic director and the responsibility and the reluctance sometimes from producers to want to hand over the reins, it often is not someone right out of film school. It is often someone who does who has not just made you know one or two shorts. Unless those shorts are phenomenal, we we have had people who have gotten in who have not directed features who have just done several shorts. Also, probably your first short is it's not going to be as good as the fifth short that you've made. So it it really it really varies, and it's it's also a testament to the quality of the work and and honing your skills. So I know that's I, I don't mean it to be a non answer, but it's everybody's a, a little bit different. But I, I would say just sort of the overarching theme is that you're not green. We feel like you are ready to step on set and command a primetime television show, and that you have the confidence and leadership skills and, and, and all of that. I know Ellie probably has the answer, but I want to just jump in with a little follow up on that really quick. Like, are there certain things like in the work that help? Like if they have celebrities in their work, is that like a bonus? Cause it shows like, Oh, they've worked on a high level. Does that matter to you? Like, is there anything about the content that like will help you decide? Or is it just like, Oh, it has to be good. 
celebrities, I, I don't, I, sometimes I'm like, oh, how'd they get that person? That's cool. But it <laughs> does not make me think that they are any more skilled than someone working with just a no-name working actor. I think, again, going to the fact that sometimes we have really great people applying with amazing work that I feel like there's, I, there's we don't have a show for you. It, it's not sort of matching what we do here. I think part of that is television in general, which is tends to be glossy, cinematic, lots of visual style, and, and particularly Warner Brothers, who does a lot of really big shows and works in, you know, in genre and, and whatnot. But even for the non-genre shows, I, I think it can sometimes be hard for a showrunner for me to send, say, an indie film about a dysfunctional family in turn of the century, Kansas, that takes place in one location. And the performances are really wonderful, but it feels very, you know, super, super teeny tiny indie. So I think it's hard sometimes for, I, I can see the value in that again, having worked in indie film, and I know that what goes into it and that people can scale up and all of that. But I think sometimes some television producers may not see how that person can scale up. But, you know, they may appreciate it, but go like, oh, it feels too small. I don't know if they can handle my show. So I think that it's not to say that you need to have like shot an action sequence in your in, in your material or anything, but I do think there is a larger weight in TV on visual style and scope and production value in addition to performance. Obviously, performance is, is super important. I think something that looks really slick, but just, you know, the acting is terrible, like that's going to, that's going to, you know, knock you. So I think it has to be good. I think you, you do need to be a good storyteller. We forgive sometimes so-so writing because we're not hiring you as a writer, but I think it has to, yeah, it has to check all those boxes that I mentioned. Rebecca, you used to use an analogy that, that I, 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 th- I think I'm getting right, but I thought it was really, really good because it provides an example of how, you know, the indie style, which can be very quiet and be a little bit of a harder sell tonally, stylistically for say, you know, a Warner Brothers television series, it's very glossy, high concept, et cetera is maybe finding a way, even if your style is quiet, to convey tension that doesn't feel quite so soft. Like re- I've heard Rebecca many times use the, the analogy of the opening scene of Inglorious Bastards, where you've got the Nazis upstairs and then it pans down and, and you think it's just this scene you know, with them upstairs, but it pans down and you've got people hiding underneath the floorboards and then you pan back up. And just that small thing, which doesn't require special effects or, you know, a super high production value or a lot of money or, or action or whatever, conveys an ability to, to carry something that, that is a lot and isn't necessarily like those small, quiet character moments, which are fantastic, but are a slightly harder sell. Did I say that right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, 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 you know, simple ways to raise the stakes, to add tension, to get the viewer on, on the edge of their seat. I've also seen some short films that were kind of like horror genre short films that had absolutely no special effects at all other than sound design and lighting cues that were incredibly effective. So I think I think there are ways to creatively make use of the small amount of money that most people have when they are when they are making their work to sort of make it feel larger in scope than than it actually is. Moving beyond the application process and what you look for and how you how you bring on participants. I think there's a lot of trepidation from the indie feature world of what is a TV set like. And I'm sure those anxieties are expressed to you within the program. And I was wondering if you had any bits of advice to feature directors who may be looking to the episodic world, but may be just nervous about the 
procedural difference between the two? Yeah, I think that the biggest difference is that in television, television is a writer's medium. So the showrunner is the king. So you as a director are freelance. You're a guest director hired for that episode. It's not your cast. It's not your crew. You are stepping in and yes, expected to be a leader, expected to make your days, come in on budget, have a plan, make quick decisions, be able to pivot, all, all of those things. But you're not, as often happens in, in, in indie film, you're not the writer director, you're not the sole creative auteur force behind this thing. You still have to fulfill someone else's vision. So it's a, it's, it's a tricky line sometimes to balance between having all those leadership skills and being able to make your days and get, you know, get this crew behind you and get your cast behind you and all of that. And at the same time, play according to their rules and deal with their hierarchy and politics and whatnot. And I think, you know, I've talked to some indie directors who are like, I don't want to go direct other people's work or whatever. I think that's selling yourself short as a director, because as we know, most, most indie directors don't get to direct very often. If you're making films or even shorts, maybe you get to direct once every couple of years. And here in, in episodic, if you spend, say you book five or six episodes in a year, that maybe take you takes you ha- half a year to, to do, right? And you've made enough money to spend the other six months working on your passion project. So from a sustainability point of view, it's very lucrative. At the same time, you have now directed six episodes of TV and potentially different genres with different casts, different crew, different toys that you get to play with and tools and things like that. So you're constantly honing your skills as a director. So I think it's short-sighted to think that you're not going to grow as a director in episodic, that you can then you know, use those skills in your own work. Just to clarify, I was asking from a point of view of lack of confidence in, uh, oh. from the director. I don't know. I mean, Ali, you could answer this too. I don't know if I've found a sort of theme of of indie directors not feeling confident. I think if anything, it's maybe the opposite that they're like, oh, I, I, and and I don't mean that in a arrogant way, but you know, I oh yeah, I've directed all the stuff I know. Yeah, and it's a different medium, and that's what the workshop itself is about. It's not directing one hundred and one because everyone who's gotten in, we know, is talented. So much of it is focused on teaching how the medium is different. And these are the tools you need to be su- that will make you successful as you go through this episode that are different from, from indie film, that are different from branded content, that are different from commercials and whatnot. When you have directors who've gotten into the program, like, and what makes... Well, I guess the directors are guaranteed an episode. So I'm, uh, well, let me ask the question anyway. So like, what, what makes someone separate... The, the person who ends up having a career as a TV director and continues on this path and doesn't just have one episode and is done, but like actually thrives versus somebody who like maybe isn't as so success- successful in their the episode that they direct. Like what's the, what are some factors that you see that, you know, will lead to like a lo- longevity, you know, yeah. in, in this career? Well, the good thing is that I feel like most of our directors are having that because we train them really well and we pick them really well, but it's not always the case. I think a lot of it goes to kind of what I said before, which is, towing the line between being the captain of the ship and having those leadership skills to command set, but also being really collaborative. And, you know, as a, when you're working with actors, not moving them around like chess pieces to achieve your shot list, but when they give you something different, can you pivot? Knowing that these actors have been playing these roles for potentially years, so they know them better than you and they know when something feels unmotivated or they're bumping up against it. So I think actors, if they don't have confidence in a director, they will make sure they do not come back. So I think it's really, we work a lot on on that director-actor relationship. 
and as well as like with the DP and, and, and all of that and, and making sure that you're, you get everything you need. The, the worst thing to hear is it was a really tough edit. You know, the show finally came together, but it was a really tough edit because the director didn't get everything they needed or, you know, and, and sometimes these things are out of your control. I think the other challenge about episodic directing is you sometimes get blamed for things that are out of your control, like a really terrible script or production, or like you lost days because an actor went out sick and they didn't, you know, you didn't have enough time to get it or you lost a location. All these things happen. And the easiest thing to do is just not bring that director back. So there are some times where directors just get the short end of the stick. But I, I do think it's those that, like I said, can sort of find that balance. And during the workshop, I would say, you know, we work a lot uh, on that. There are still sometimes very, very rarely, because like I said, uh, most of our alumni are doing really well. But once in a while, the episode, uh, they still feel like that director was just maybe a little too green or not quite deer in headlights, but just wasn't, didn't feel like they were in command in the way that the show would hope and or felt like, I don't know, just like they weren't trusted and that you build that really quickly. And it's hard. I mean, doing it your first time, hopefully the show that you're on is going to be supporting you. If they have a producing director, they're there to support you as well. We always send our directors to shadow on the show before they direct their episodes. So they get to know the casting crew in advance. So they're not showing up day one blind. This is touching on something Rebecca already said, but, but I, I would add an ability to be flexible and, and have ease when things go wrong, and specifically when things go wrong the way they do in TV, because anyone who's ever shot anything knows that what can go wrong will go wrong, you'll lose your day, you know, you'll spend money you didn't plan to spend, et cetera, et cetera. But there's that added level in television of so much more is out of your control, also creatively. And so being able to, as Rebecca mentioned, you know, pivot in the moment and, and not be so tied to your ideas that you can't, that you can't adjust. And, and having done so much prep work and so much legwork that when somebody throws the biggest possible curveball your way, you know, two hours before the end of the, before you're at the end of your day and you've got five hours of work planned, you, you can just brush it off and go, okay, that's great. I've got a plan C and move on. Because I think that that is only an asset to all the things Rebecca already mentioned. One other thing I would like to add, particularly about the time in the workshop is once in a while, it happens that one of the directors who may have directed several things and feel very secure in their process. It's always worked for them. We teach them a different process and we ask them to be open to it. And I have seen a couple of times with some of those directors that I think maybe have accomplished more in their previous work that they're a little resistant to it. And it's not like we are trying to churn out robotic, you know, like <laughs> robo directors that just sort of copy exactly what we do, but the idea is to remain uh, like we're teaching this for a reason because it's been successful for many, many, many people be open to it and then take what works for you and incorporate it into your process and, and leave what doesn't. But I think when you're not open to it, when you go like, whatever, why would I do that? I've been directing, you know, I've directed two features and blah, blah, blah. And it's, it's worked fine for me, but we're recognizing something that we think may cause you some trouble down the road because of this different medium, be aware of that. We're not trying to change you as a director. We're hoping that you're going to grow, but also listen to the expertise of people who've been doing it for a lot longer. Mm, sounds ideal. I think we have to move on to our final questions. First question for both of you. And we've adjusted these slightly because as I said in our pre-conversation, usually they're about 
what's the first film you made and how do you feel about it now? So we're going to adjust it to what's the show or film that really galvanized you to get involved in the industry or play or, or podcast or whatever? <laughs> <laughs> well, I was already in the industry, but I think the, the show that galvanized me that I was on the right path of, of, of being in TV. And I should say, once I came to LA after giving up acting, I thought I was going to go into features. That was what my internship was in. And when I landed at an agency, I was hoping to get on a feature desk, but I got on a TV desk and I thought, okay, fine, I'll just do this for a little while. But, you know, features was sexy. TV, this was the early stages of this TV renaissance. So it wasn't quite what it was now. But my first year there during pilot season, it was the year of the Friday Night Lights pilot. And I remember thinking, I, I don't even think I'd seen the movie at that point. And I thought, and, and I, 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 as a habit, I, I tried to w- read and watch every pilot so that I, as an assistant, could just soak up all the information and learn, you know, who makes what, where, and who are the names and what are the writers that I responded to. So, so I thought, ugh, I don't care about football. I don't care about life in small town Texas. And then I read and then watched that pilot and was blown away. And it, still one of my favorite shows of all time. And so I think that show in particular, as well as I don't even remember what the other pilots were that year, but that's the one that stood out, galvanized me in the way to to rethink working in TV and kind of reminded me that yes, I've always loved film, but I've also all my family always watched TV together. And the idea of it coming into your home and sort of looking and looking forward to watching it week after week with these families and seeing what happens over the course of seasons it it reminded me of that and and i just saw that the quality of the content being produced in television was equal to that of features so it sort of stuck so i'm also going to answer this question in terms of because you know my immediate obvious answer to like the 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 story that blew my mind as a kid and made me want to do anything related to this industry and looking at your t-shirt is star wars because i remember (laughs) i remember the moment of sitting with my parents and he says, Luke, I am your father. And I was just floored. Like, I was, I, I was about, did you know? Did you know? You knew the whole time? But, but in terms of television, similar to Rebecca, you know, I love everything, but, but my, my comfort food is anything genre. So I think the show that I came to late, I watched it in my 20s, but that blew my mind in terms of television as a storytelling medium was, and if you know, you know, Battlestar Galactica. I mm-hmm. it's one of it's still to this day. I rewatched it during the pandemic. It's still one of my favorite shows on so many levels. You know, like Rebecca said, in terms of well, so many things. But I think for me, the biggest thing was being able to plant the seed of an idea and not come back to it for three seasons, and and then you can put the pieces together of of the thread of that idea. I thought was so masterful and just one of my favorites. What's the best advice you've ever received? Yes, please take it. I have to think of something. I don't know. This is my favorite advice I've ever received because I think for anyone who is in this industry or moves to LA from New York or moves to LA from Austin or whatever, there's pressure to network. And I don't know anyone who likes networking. So the best advice I got was don't network, make friends. And I think that the most important takeaway from that is not that you have to be friends with everybody, but if you, if you start a conversation with someone or have a coffee with someone and it just doesn't click, okay, okay, let it go. You know, you're not meant to maybe work with them forever anyway, because maybe they're not your people. The relationships for me that have been the most fruitful are the people that I genuinely connect with. 
I always get this metaphor wrong that it's not a race, it's a marathon, whatever that one is, <laughs> which by the way, I always hated when people said that to me when I was younger, much in the way of like, it's a journey, enjoy the journey. Like I hated that. I just wanted, I wanted everything to happen for me really quickly. But I had a very sort of zigzaggy, circuitous route to where I am now, which is, I think happens so much in this industry, especially for any filmmakers. I mean, even for me as an executive, I had that, but even more so for writers and directors and whatnot, because there is no one path to success. It's not like you want to be a lawyer. So you go to law school, you want to be a doctor, you go to med school there's, and you do well, and then you succeed, you get a job. And so I took jobs that I hoped panned out and then didn't and led me this way and led me that way and all of that. But, but I've sort of ended up where I'm meant to be, which is great. And even more so, like I said, for, for writers and directors, it takes a long time sometimes. People succeed at different rates, but I think you have to keep working at it and keep honing your craft. It's a little bit harder, of course, as a director, because as a writer, you can just keep writing and it costs you nothing and you can do it in your home. <laughs> Directing, obviously, there's a financial burden to it. But if this is your life path, if this is what you chose to do, you have to make, you have to figure out a way to do it. Because everyone else, you know, like I said, just in terms of the people that apply to our program and all the others that are out there, there are a million other people who are as ambitious and are going to give up at nothing to, to succeed. So if you want it, you have to want it bad enough and, and find a way to do it. The flip side of the coin, what's the worst advice you've ever received? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I know I've gotten bad advice. Of course, I can. Oh, jeez. What have some other people said? Maybe that'll jog my mind. Well, maybe maybe this will help. I don't know. I don't know if I would call this advice necessarily, but if it's a bit of a pet peeve of mine in terms of people have in terms of how people talk about this business and this industry and paths to success. I think a lot of people, and I think that this may just be a reflection of how understandably difficult it is to do anything in this industry, are very discouraging when giving advice. They will say, Well, you can't do it that way. You can't do it that way and you shouldn't do that and you're not ready for X, Y, and Z. I've had so many sort of like quote unquote helpful coffees or phone calls or Zooms where I leave the conversation feeling so discouraged because I feel like I've done everything wrong. I didn't do it your way. So therefore I'm doomed. I think that could not be less true. You know, to Rebecca's point, there there is no one path. And I think I guess I would just say to anyone else who is having those conversations or finds themselves getting that kind of discouraging, quote unquote, advice, shake it off because I, I don't think there's any one right way to do this. I still can't think of anything. That's okay. That's great that you've <laughs> never, yeah. never had bad advice given to you. Oh, no. I, I guarantee someone's given me bad advice. I just honestly can't remember. <laughs> so final question, is making movies or, or television hard? Yes. <laughs> very. It's it's very hard. <laughs> if it was easy, everyone would do it, right? It's hard, but it's amazing. I don't know. Hey, uh. So just do a little plug for the Television Writers Workshop. Where should people find you? What should people do if they're interested? Like, let people know. Yes. If you are interested in applying to either the Warner Brothers Writers Workshop or Directors Workshop, you can find all the information related to both and the application processes at televisionworkshop.warnerbros.com. You can also email our general inbox via a form on that website if you have questions that you don't see answered there. And if you didn't catch that, you can just Google Warner Brothers Workshop and it'll take you to our page. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you for being on the show. Thanks for having us. Yeah. All right. What do you remember about chatting with Rebecca and Ellie? 
I remember that it was like, okay, like these people take it seriously. Like it's not total bullshit, you know, like they actually really care about the work they do and finding the absolute best person for the program uh, or programs. And I thought it was really interesting because I guess I, I just assumed it was a program that was only for certain people that it was like all the other ones where so you, you know it's a diversity related program of some kind or focusing on women but to hear that they're like really open to anyone and it's not it's one of the few programs that haven't been turned into that you know i thought that was cool that was interesting but yeah i mean i loved when i asked them I was like no really like i mean your bosses and like people at wb they must be like sending you applicants like that they want to like push through the program and for the, their answer to that question, I thought was really honest and truthful. And anything else would have been bullshit. So I'm really appreciate that they at least said that. But yeah, what about you? What do you remember? I re- I got like flashbacks to working at Sundance because I remember like I ran a fellowship at Sundance and I would do promotion and outreach for it, and everyone was like, "No," and I talk about this, and then everyone was like, "No one, no one at Sundance is going to look at my application. Why should I even apply?" And it was a free application for us. And then I remember talking to other Sundance staffers and how they really took the opportunity to staff their programs very seriously. And I got that feeling from Rebecca and Ellie where it's like they realize the responsibility that they have and they take it seriously. And that's very, very important for us as filmmakers who are applying to these programs. So, and I think you and I are both going to apply, right? Like, I think so. We're going to do, like, should we make this thing? Like, it's on my to-do list every day and I never do it. So I need to kind of like put some fire under this task. I, I don't think it's open yet. I think it's going to be open soon. Oh, or did it open? It will open in May. We have time. We have time, people. Oh, don't have to God. freak out about it. I'll push it to May. That's good. The one thing about me applying is like, I, I don't want to apply if I don't feel like if I did get in that we actually would move to Los Angeles <laughs> because I kind of feel like that seems like part of it, right? Like, because you actually have to be there. Like, you can't just be... You know, yeah, but you could probably like, Andrew Schrader has an extra bed. You know, you could <laughs> fly or, or drive down. There may be a way to. I mean, I, I think I think like like let's see. Here's how it would work. Right. So basically, if I was to do it, I'd have to know that, you know, if everything went well and I got into the program and then the program went well and I got hired as a director on a show that the end goal would be us moving to Los Angeles. Because if all those things happen, like you pretty much have to be in LA to, to be a TV director, I think. Though the work is, I mean, unless if you're just starting out, I don't think the work is that frequent. You know what I mean? Like, So you just like travel for the job or whatever? I, and that might be okay. You might. Be I mean, I'm not that far from Los Angeles either. But anyways, I don't know. So I guess I, th- I think that's part of it. It's like, I wouldn't want to do it if it wasn't something I was actually like serious about. Yeah. You know, not that like the likelihood of me getting in is high, but, but you know, you don't want to put all the time and energy and effort into it. If you're like, you're not actually like, yes, like I want to move to Los Angeles. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. But I, but I, I would I get that. I but know, it could be fun. It would be really fun though, but it'd be fun just to see if we actually get anywhere with it. You know, I think we should apply. I, the only thing I ever really tried to apply for, like really tried was the half initiative, the Ryan Murphy thing. Mm. And the time I applied for it, it was right before the pandemic. So actually, I've not been able to, like, I'm a finalist, but then they still have the other finalists from the season before, and I haven't been selected yet. So it's like, I think there's a lot of programs that a lot of people submit for, but they just kind of like throw it into the ether. But if you really mm-hmm. take time 
and put everything into it, you're in a different echelon of consideration is what I'm just trying yeah. to say. And, it, and I agree. You can't just like fill these out willy nilly. The ones I've done before, I think I did the Sun Dance Riders one once. Obviously didn't get in. Uh, did the DGA trainee program twice. Didn't oh. get to the second level either times. What are the other ones I did? I did San Francisco. Oh, I did SF Film Society twice, I think. Yeah. I think they did them once. Didn't get oh, in. Did not get anywhere close with those. Yeah. yeah. And then I think I might have done IFP, but maybe I didn't do IFP when I just thought about it. I think I did Film Independent maybe once and maybe yeah. a Sundance thing once. But yeah, yeah I rejected, rejected across the board always. Yeah, but I mean, I don't know. I feel like, like, like these people, like, you know, like everyone says, it's like you have to really take it seriously. And yeah. it's like a total like art to like write these applications, you know, and to, you know, I don't know if I would do the writer's one because <laughs> I don't think I have a, a spec script in me. Like maybe yeah. I do, but you know, I, I think I definitely focus more <laughs> on, on the directing side of things, but I, I, I would love us to do it. And then just to see like if either of us gets past. <laughs> Anything, you know, because I know there's like different tiers and levels before you, Let's you know, apply. accept it. Let's do it. Let's do it. And then if okay. anyone else wants to join us, like let us know if you're submitting as well. Yeah. And we can all track each other's progress together. And then, you know, if one of us gets anywhere, then we can all be excited for that person and, yeah. you know, cheer them on and like, yay, go MMIH compadre. <laughs> We're doing it. But yeah, I think uh, we should go on to this article from No Film School. And it's all about how Sony and Epic Games are making strides in the virtual production space with this new type of, you know, volume setup with Sony's crystal LED displays, which come with a built-in pipeline that allow, like, people who are starting their own studios to get into the virtual production space with, like, an all-in-one package type thing. So, you, like, buy these, these monitors, which are basically, like, you know, what would be your, your background, your green screen, and then, like, you have an infrastructure, like, built in that you can, like, you know, send, you know, the backgrounds to it. And it's like all kind of like all in one sort of package. And that's where Epic Games comes in is because they're the ones who do the, un the Unreal Engine. And then they're going to have a bunch of like, you know, pre-made backgrounds that you can drop into this system. So it's like, you know, all in one, you've got everything you need to like start making your movies like in this, you know, digital virtual space. And it's like the, basically they're trying to like take it out of like, you know, Star Wars and Marvel only and bring it into like, you know, like filmmakers like us so like we could like utilize it for our films so liz i don't know what did you think of this article i mean i'm very supportive of anything that makes filmmaking easier or more accessible to any one filmmaker or filmmaking team and like this sounds amazing strides in technology have allowed this to happen for the type of films that i'm interested in making i want to be in the space i want to feel that the space has its own identity and I want to work with a designer to like influence that identity and also actors, I think, get a lot from the ambience of a location. And I want to be outside and I want to use natural lighting and all these things. That doesn't mean that there's like an elitist argument of that being better than the virtual production space. I'm just more interested in traveling to unique locations right now in my career. But this is amazing. This is very, very cool news. I just don't think I'm going in this direction is how I feel. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like for sci-fi filmmakers, like this is like a really big thing because like suddenly where you couldn't have like, you know, like a starship in the background or like whatever, like, you know, if you wanted to like imagine like you're on like a space station in space with like a bunch of like, you know, 
starships in the background and you're like trying to set up like they're going to do a galactic war or whatever. It's like you can't do that in real life, right? <laughs> you have to do that in a virtual space. And like now you can make that happen. That like little one small scene you need for your sci-fi feature or sci-fi short. Like you can now do it like in your own little space that you set up. I'm not saying that everyone's going to be able to afford to buy these Sony Crystal LED setups and set this up in their place. But, you know, it's like why we're seeing these like new studios pop up kind of all over that are like trying to do this and like trying to create their own like little virtual production stages where you can, you know, pipe in, you know, this kind of digital backdrops and like create these little scenes. Like I know these guys, Brian Norwalk and Brian Sibula, I used to work with them at a production company in San Francisco. But they started their own cult place called Super Sweet Productions just like five months ago. And they, they, that's like their whole thing is they're trying to utilize this technology and bring it to clients, you know, to, to use in their commercials. And then also, you know, to, to create movies and create short films. They have these like little fun videos they created with like one of them like walking through like, you know, a jungle. And they have like some plants on their stage that they're, he's walking by. But then the background is like the rainforest or whatever. And it looks pretty convincing, you know, definitely seems like they were able to do it. And I mean, I'm not sure how much effort it took to like, you know, get the lighting right and, you know, whatever, make it look like believable. But yeah, definitely seemed really impressive. And then I watched the Riot Film video that was on linked in the article from No Film School. And they, they kind of outlined a whole bunch of different use cases, like, you know, beautiful sunset at night, you know, or like, or sunset, not at night, but like, you know, at sunset, you know, a couple of nighttime scenes and a couple other things that like, you know, seemed pretty interesting and like what they kind of came up with was like it looks way better if it's not a daytime scene like if it is like something like a sunset sunset or a nighttime or like some kind of interior like it's easier to match that lighting but like trying to like you know match like daylight lighting in a studio is like way more challenging so i don't know so i'm thinking it more like if you have a very specific scene for a film that you're trying to do like this could be a really great solution for that scene But I wouldn't like say you're going to make a whole movie this way as an independent filmmaker. It reminds me, I mean, I think I was like stuck watching some children's programming one day and they were talking about how there's companies that create these libraries of CGI animals for you to use in your films, right? I love that. Like that I'm actually in love with because it's so much better than bringing in this animal where they like, I don't know how they treat these animals and they're, you know, to get them to be, to adjust their behavior, to do tricks for the camera, you know what I mean? But if you can manipulate, you know, a digital file to make it do things that you want it to do, that seems a lot more humane to me. And so it's like, I love the use of technology to help the problems in unethical filmmaking. Like, that's very cool. And then, of course, to help the budgets of filmmakers. But then, yeah, if these packages are really expensive, then we're not really making it more accessible for film. So hopefully it'll be so prevalent that everyone will be able to shoot space spaceship films. Yeah, I haven't tried to rent out one of these studios, one of these spaces before. I'd be really curious to know like what the cost is to like yeah. kind of get that kind of experience and then like what like how big is the stage actually going to be if you're doing it on a budget? Like is it going to be it's like a, a proper sound stage or is it like yeah, like we have like a little warehouse where we have like a, a you know, a 20 by 20 you know, screen setup. So you can do like, you know, a shot this like this, but you can't do any full body or, or anything like that, right. which I think is some of the mo- the coolest stuff is like when they they have like these shots where it's like, 
They're supposed to be in in the desert and like you know on Tatooine or whatever, and they have like all the sand and everything around it in in the studio. But then they have like the amazing backdrops mm-hmm. around them. It's like that is really really cool. Yeah. But anyways, I, I'm I'm cur- I would love the chance to work w- with this kind of setup. I just don't think that like in my indie w- life that's gonna happen unless it's very something like I was saying, like something super specific where it's like we have this one scene, this one shot, this one thing. That we can't really do any other way. Let's try to do it, you know, using this this kind of virtual production setup. Yeah. So, Liz, I wanted to ask you a question. Uh-huh. It's been something that, like, I've been thinking about a while, and I kind of I tried to ask it in a different way on another episode, and then you had a better thing to talk about instead. But I think this really kind of really boils it down to like exactly what I'm trying to get at is like, so like, what do you think makes a good movie? Is it like one thing? Many things, like a feeling, like what is it that makes a good movie? Yeah, I, I, I don't know the answer, but I'm here to explore with you, right? So it's like, it feels like the answer is a perfect storm of a lo- like everything going well. But there's got to be movies that you and I both love that aren't that great in one aspect or another, but we still are impacted by it. But is that a good movie? What it made me think of, which I hope doesn't take us too much off track, is I was on Netflix last night and I was looking at like various options to go to sleep. And there was a movie I'd never heard of. And then underneath the movie, it said, feel good, romantic, uplifting. And you and I are no strangers to those kind of things. Like we know that there's like these like micro targeting that Netflix does in terms of like, what kind of movie do you want? But that reminded me, I met this guy at AT AT&T Shape, whose dream and project is to is to make movies in an AI framework so that they cheer you up if you're sad or they, you know, fulfill some sort of emotional need that you have. You program the robot and you say, I want a movie that, you know, is, you know, supplementing something in my personality that I don't have at this exact moment. And I think that's a problem. So I'm realizing now I'm going on a soapbox of something completely unrelated. But I think that movies shouldn't cater to us, is what I'm trying to say. I think Mm. a good movie reflects a very specific, somewhat intimate and honest expression from a group of people who are trying to impart something truthful to an audience. And I think what is problematic is that we're making these AI-generated either algorithms for recommendation engines or movies themselves to like help people escape their world and to service a need when I think f- good movies to me are really personal. Sorry, I know that's really vague and a little like soapboxy, but I'd love to hear you actually give an answer. Well, I just want to dig into that a little bit because, you know, we, we talked to Kiet last week or a couple weeks ago and, you know, he's talking about the shark movie he made, you know, and he made, he, he wrote it because... <laughs> One of his producers that works with him was like, hey, shark movies are selling really well right now. Like, you should write a shark movie. And so, he's like, okay. Like, all right, let me come from it. And he did exactly what you're saying. Like, he he thought of it. He came at it from a personal place. He found some characters that he really believed in, a story that he really wanted to tell about these people. And then he, like, wrote it, wrote it, wrote that, and then, you know, tied the shark in to this, this story that has, like, a real human conflict or a real human, like, I don't know, issues grounded in it, basically. And then he had to change it from being like an Asian movie to an American movie. And so then what the conflict and what the issues were changed 
to fit an American audience, but he still like, you know, went to a place where people can relate to, you know, first and then brought the shark in. So I guess my question to you, like, is that so bad? No. Like, is it bad that like bad. the market is asking for something and then as filmmakers, we're trying to deliver that thing, but also, you know, tell a good, engaging human That's story different. at the same time. That's totally fine. That's different from what I'm talking about. I'm talking about like, we shouldn't, I know there's, I don't, you know, I'm not a big Louis C.K. fan for obvious reasons. There's like a bit that he did where he's like, we don't sit bored anymore. We don't allow ourselves to just sit and be bored. We're just constantly trying to service what we think are like dearths in our life. Just constantly trying to like overstimulate ourselves. That's what I worry about the future of film and these recommendation engines and these films that like are using micro targeting is like, we're just going to like constantly make movies to serve emotional needs, which I think is problematic because it's not putting, it's not holding the artist accountable to make something cohesive for themselves. But I'm totally cool with that. Like there's a Barbie movie that Greta Gerwig is doing with Noam Baumbach. There's a mm. Polly Pocket movie that Lena Dunham is doing. It's like, at first you think like, this is absurd. But then you think like, no, it's, I mean, they're using the system. They're using the known IP to tell a story that they want to tell. And I'm totally down for that. That's fine. I'm doing so a witch movie to tell a story <laughs> that I want to tell. I don't care about witches. Sorry, witches. Don't ask me. <laughs> so what you're basically saying is like, you know, in your filmmaking, like don't write a movie or make a movie that is like blatantly manipulating emotions because you think that that's what people want yeah. to see in their lives. Like, don't just like write it to be sad or write it to be happy or write it to be this, like actually tell a story. And then like, if it, you know, these emotions come from the story and that's fine, but we shouldn't be trying to manufacture emotions out of yeah. our audiences. It's the same thing as like using like a swell of violins during like a death scene. It's like, <laughs> you're just like cranking it up for no reason. Like <laughs> maybe, maybe that's not a great analogy. It's probably not a one-to-one ratio no but i get what you're saying yeah though. it's it's cruel and it's ex, ex, exploitative and we it's should, also hacky it's too. hacky <laughs> it's stupid have more class tell stories that you want to tell and you can wrap them around known ip or things that you know that are commercial that's fine i could care less about that yeah what happens when i see a scene like that in a movie is like i start to have this emotion where i'm like oh Oh, yeah, I'm so sad. Oh, and you're making me cry so hard. Oh, I'm so... Oh, and you're just like, oh, this is bullshit. Like, this is total... Like, you totally phoned it in. Like, you're making all the obvious choices here. Like, what the fuck is wrong with you? <laughs> you know, like, like let's, like, think of something different that we could do in this moment. Like, let's, like, push it in a different direction. Yeah. Let's, like, you know, make it about the character. Make it about what's going on with them. Not just, like you know, blowing it open <laughs> with this ridiculous, obvious choice. Well, and art should be surprising, I think, is the thesis of what I'm saying. It shouldn't be to please you. Art, my art is shouldn't be just to please other people. And your art, sh it should be something that you'd want to see. And if you want to see it, most likely other people want to see it and you'll grow an audience. But you shouldn't make something like this, push boundaries. And then la last part of this, which I think is is interesting, is like, does that matter? Like what a director thinks a good movie is like, does it, does that really have any impact on the movie itself? Do you think, or is it more like, you know, it's really the script and the team around it and all that stuff matters. And like what the director wants or enjoys really doesn't play. 
That's interesting. Because I think, like me, for example, I am like a very dark pessimist. So I'm never going to think something is good. And I think there's a lot of other people like me who are creators who are never going to be satisfied with something. So that's if 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 you're up against that, if you're up against like a level of negativity that's really unhealthy, you're not going to be able to evaluate things properly <laughs> as a director. Right. Does it matter if they think it's a good movie? I think the process is bigger than one opinion. I also I had this term. So when I went to film school, and before I went to film school, I had my friend, his name is Eric Dean Spry. And he was like, I appointed him as my mentor for a few years. And he would just recommend movies. And I called them epiphany movies. And there are movies where when you watch them, you got kind of high. Do you know what I'm saying? Like you just got so excited mm-hmm. and inspired by them. And they're always like these art house films. Like last year at Marion Bad was a big epiphany movie for me where I was like, what? What is going on? This is crazy. Usually I was smoking a cigarette while I was watching them. Usually, <laughs> like, you just, it's like total pretentious situation, drinking a cup of coffee. So, what I'm saying is, like, I don't think the reason I felt high was because the director is such a genius that they had their hands over every single part of that film and is the real reason for the quality of that film. Nor do I think that Spielberg is entirely responsible for everything he does, right? It's a collaboration. So, I do think it's like an, a weird accident that everything aligns and right. then it becomes good because everything aligned for some reason. Right. Well, I guess what I was really asking is like, d- does the director's opinion of what a good movie is impact their ability to direct a good movie? Well, what do you mean? Like, like, yeah. like if you, if, like, if, like, let's say like you, you love, I don't know, like let's name a couple great movies. I don't know, like Goodfellas, let's, let's say. Okay, like you're a I'm fan of Goodfellas yeah. and Scarface or whatever, like Goodfell- all these Goodfell- great, yes. great gangster movies. Like, does that make it easier for you to make a great gangster movie? Or is that actually maybe detrimental to your ability because you're so obsessed with this thing mm-hmm. that you're not able to create something that is different than the thing that you love so much? Are you... You're dealing with this right now. Is that what's happening? Because you can't make a good, a good, you can't make a good, good, Goodfellas movie or a good gangster movie that's just like Goodfellas because it's already been done. Like you have to make a gangster movie that is different than Goodfellas, right? That like does something new and exciting and tells a story in a different way than Goodfellas does. Yes. But still feels like a gangster movie and is a good story. So I guess I'm just like a perfect example for me. So, Brian Singer, another terrible person, <laughs> we shouldn't really be whatever bringing up, but like, you know, he made the Superman movie, right? And it was terrible. Except for Sean Ter- loves it. Terrible. Yes. Sean loves it. Oh Wait, my which God. One? Is this the one not, that like. Not Man of Steel. Jesus? This is. Okay, no. No, not that one. Never I love that one. <laughs> yeah, he likes no, the Super- Man of Steel. No, Superman one. Returns, the one with Brandon Routh oh. from like 2006. Kate Bosworth, right? Kate Bosworth. Kate is- Bosworth is Lois Lane. This. Yeah. All right, never mind. So basically, this movie is like a remake of the Richard Donner Superman movie. But it's, but it's actually a sequel set many, many years later, you know, cause like Superman's got a kid and he left Earth and all this stupid shit. But like basically the movie is like, it's so much the Richard Donner movie because he loved the Richard Donner movie so much 
that it sucks terrible because it, it doesn't do anything new. It's just redoing the Richard Donner movie again in a different way in a boring, dated, dumb way. Yeah. And it's like, he was the absolute wrong person to make a Superman movie because he loved the Richard Donner one so much. He was trying to make that movie again. And it's like, no, you actually need to get somebody who maybe loves Batman more to make a Superman movie because then they're going to do something that's completely different than what you think Superman would be. And then that's actually going to be the good Superman movie. So that's what I'm getting at is like, yeah, do does what we love. Yeah. Yeah. Like does what we love make us better filmmakers or is it actually just who we are as people and as writers? And that's really what matters. And our influences, fuck the influences, you know? Yeah. I don't think the influences should always come into play. I mean, I think there's an argument for someone saying like, you should be well-read, right? Like well-read mean like you see a lot of movies, you know what you're referencing if you're referencing it. But ultimately, when critics write about films, just like when we talked to Tim Cogshell about this, they're not like unable to open up the mind of the filmmaker and like exactly say that they were referencing Scorsese or there. I mean, it's always interpretational mm-hmm. on behalf of the audience. So I'd rather a filmmaker do something because they thought it was, God, this is such an interesting question because you don't always know what's urging you to make a creative decision. You like, will be like, let's do a tracking shot here. And then you're like, oh, this is Alice doesn't live here anymore. Damn it. Like you don't even know. (laughs) So I think we're in a postmodern society where we're just like, we're made up of references now. And so it's going to be very, very difficult to get past tributes and pastiches. I think what gatekeepers are looking for is that quote-unquote bold original voice that doesn't feel like it's Quentin Tarantino, you know, the second. Yeah. Well, it's so funny because, like, I was just thinking about Tarantino because, like, what he did was he just, like, redid scenes and and moves and shots and everything from a ton of foreign movies that no one ever fucking saw (laughs) in America. So, we didn't know when he's ripping off a movie. But then I I watched this... uh, I can't remember what it's called. It's like Lady Snowblood, I think, is, is the name. And it's like this really awesome, like, 70s samurai movie about this woman who, like, is like a badass assassin. And she was, like, left for dead when she was a baby. And, like, they killed her mother and her father. And then, like, she goes and, like, becomes this assassin who, like, kills bad people only, basically. And there's, like, literally the song and multiple shots that are ripped right from that movie and put into Kill Bill. <laughs> and it's like, it's the same scene. It's the same song. It's in the end of the Kill Bill Volume 1. You're like, oh, he just fucking took that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, well... And, and no one knew <laughs> because, you know, it's just so funny. So I, I just feel like the, the, the really beautiful way to do this is like if you t- you make something new that has, like you can feel the connection to past cinema yeah. But it's different enough where it's not exactly the same, but like where it's like the perfect like odor reference, you know, where it's just like it's subtle enough where you don't necessarily put your note finger on it, but like you feel the connection. But like unlike, you know, Star Wars Force Awakens, where it's like this is basically you just fucking did New Hope again. It's like, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> like, come on, man. Like, I don't know. Anyways, it's just like it's so funny. Like, I think there's just such a fine line to walk with this stuff. Yeah. But I think as filmmakers, we should be like taking in all our influences. Like it's all part of who we are. And then you throw it all away and you do something new that just comes from, you know, the, the script, your crew, you, the moment, the actors, the singing, the set. It's all this thing that's just you whirled up in and then blap, it's on the camera. And, you know, 
who knows exactly what it comes in, but the, the more we try to like detailedly recreate something that we love, like the, the further I think we're getting away from being true artists, maybe. I don't know. I like that. I think that's a really astute observation. I do have to say, though, I rewatched Pulp Fiction last week for because I'm writing like a puzzle logic type script right now with Amy. Yeah. And that movie's so great. And it, I mean, it, they're great. It upset me so much because I was like, damn it, he's so good. He's so good. He is really good. I mean, I, I watched Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, in Kill Bill, and Inglorious Bastards over and over again. I mean, those movies are great. <sighs> they're great movies. It's, but it's like, you know, yeah, I, I don't know what else to say about him. I mean, but he is a thief. But he's a great thief. <laughs> sneaky, sneaky. <laughs> so I think with that, we should uh, go to the end of the show here. If you want to suggest a topic, if this is an exciting discussion for you, would you have your own thoughts or something else you'd like us to, to discuss on the show, you can send us a comment, question, or suggestion to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com. Or if you really like the show, you can leave us a review on iTunes. You can also check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at MMIH Podcast and YouTube at Making Movies is Hard Podcast. You should also check out the International Screenwriters Association, the ISA. It's an organization designed to connect writers with filmmakers through a number of programs they offer. They're wonderful, wonderful, wonderful people. You can go over to www.networkisa.org uh, to sign up for free today. And thanks to Rebecca and Ellie for coming on the show. Thanks to our editor, Jeff Vrymoot, for doing the editing. And thanks to our producer, Eric Toms, for just being awesome and bringing us into a new phase of the show, which is going to be very different. It already feels different to me now, but it's going to be so much different in about six months from now. So thanks to everyone for listening and talk to you all next week. After that, we talk about an article from, fuck, I don't know where it's from. No film school. 